Hello, we are the Edgy Futurists. I'm Dan Fitzpatrick. I'm Ben Whitaker. And I'm Stephen Hope. The podcast by educators for educators, the Edgy Futurist Podcast. So welcome everybody. We are recording live again. Don't forget to ask your questions and make comments uh, in the YouTube live chat or by replying to us on Twitter. If you're listening or watching um, after live recording, you can always leave a comment um, on Twitter, YouTube, or leave a review on the podcast app. Yeah, we are super excited. Just to my left or right, wherever you are looking at it now, we have uh, Lord Jim Knight, who prefers, we just had the conversation, prefers just to be known as Jim. Uh, really excited to chat to him today about his experience and the education uh, and the future. Um, if you haven't done so already, please do have a look at some of our other podcasts as well. Tomorrow, we are going to be joined live at 2pm by David Price, OBE. Um, and if you subscribe on YouTube, you'll get a, a notification, a reminder to be able to, uh, that it's going to go live. Yeah, just a reminder that yesterday we had a fantastic interview with Professor Stephen Heppel. Uh, so you can have a look on Twitter, have a look on YouTube and re-watch that. And also last week with Bob Harrison, uh, who is joining us on the live chat right now. Um who's just made a comment about everyone's beards. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, go out, go back, check that interview, because that, that was a quality interview about where education goes after COVID-19. So you can go back and also listen to our over 140 podcast episodes now at edufuturists.com. Um, and don't forget, there is a series on there called Transform Online Learning, which is edufuturists.com forward slash transform. Uh, which will help you get to grips with some of the cutting-edge tools that are helping teachers teach during this time. So, yeah, as we've said, we are joined by Lord Jim Knight. Jim is currently the Chief Education and External Officer at Test Global, and he's currently living in London. But I know that during the crisis, he has um, vacated up many, many miles away from, from, his, from his home. Um, as well as this, um, he also chairs xrapid.com, which focuses on moving towards offering free malaria diagnosis through uh, across the globe. Jim was a former UK government minister. One of his roles was Minister of State Schools uh, from 2004 to 2005. He's a current member of the House of Lords uh, and he's a visiting professor at the London Knowledge Lab of the Institute of Education in London. Yeah, he's a big advocate for technology and change needed in education, as well as being the Chief Education and External Officer, Jim comes off the bench to write articles too and you can follow him on twitter at lord jim knight the podcast by educators for educators the edu futurist podcast so welcome jim hi i'm really happy to to join uh, all the crazy beardos yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i know that i was going to start off with uh, and it's we've put, we do have a script, guys. I know that some people say we're not that polished, but we do have a script. <laughs> I was going to mention about um, do you prefer Lord or Baron Knight? But actually, uh, what Jim actually told us is that's a, a really bad joke that I didn't get uh, from Stephen. Uh, so, uh, so apologies to that. <laughs> well, it, so, it, it sort of it sort of works if you're over fifty, fifty-five, and you remember the Baron Knights in the seventies. But for everyone else, it's just sort of it's a bit of a yeah, what the hell moment. So maybe for us four that were on the, the live broadcast uh, sitting there, we just thought he was probably telling us a really good joke, but I'm sure there was an audience above 50 that were laughing their heads off when they were either watching back or uh, engaging live. So uh, maybe it was yeah. on us. So uh, I'll apologise now for him. If Bob Harrison hadn't heard it before, he'd have been laughing. <laughs> it maybe he's now. Maybe he's, he's <laughs> laugh, laughing and joining us. Uh, so let's dive into, obviously, the current climate and, and what does – I know your role at TESS – 
what is the current crisis? What does it look for you, and how does how is your continuation in your role, and what's that looking like? Well, I guess the current crisis looks like a really difficult learning curve for most teachers, um, where it, it must feel like they're having to build a plane that they're currently flying, um, and uh, yeah, a little bit chaotic and tricky. And uh, that said, you know, in most parts of the country, they're probably trying to enjoy some kind of Easter break. But um, certainly there'll be some trepidation you know, around what the next half term looks like and what kind of a job they're going to be able to do. And you know, first and foremost, my role at TES is about teachers and is about supporting them and, and trying to empower them. Um, I think then there will come a time, it may not be right now, but it's it's pretty much with us where we start to reflect on the experience that we're going through and whether there are things that we wish we could do differently or that we are now doing differently and that we'd like to be able to continue. You know, I, uh, right at the beginning of this crisis, I hosted um, the head of education for OECD, Andrew Slicer, did a presentation of the latest TALIS survey, which is a teaching and learning international survey that the OECD do, um, where they survey a few hundred thousand teachers around the world. One of the things that st struck me was the UK, well, England specifically, has one of the highest penetrations of technology in uh, schools, and yet in the three years since the previous TALIS survey, it had not advanced at all in how it used that technology. And, that, and you know, I have quite a strong sense that, you know, we had a period, um, which I'm associated with, so I'm entirely biased, but we had a period um, up until 2010 where we had really embedded uh, advanced use of technology. There's lots of things we didn't do well enough. I think things like the training for teachers on how to use the technology well, we could have done better. But, um, but we were world leaders. And if we'd continued with things like getting disadvantaged kids online at home uh, with the home access program that got dumped in 2010, if we'd continued with being world leaders around technology enhanced learning and teaching then obviously we'd have great resilience right now now you know it's perfectly reasonable to argue that was quite expensive etc but i think you know and looking at strangely flavored quarks uh, comment there there's been quite a lot of stagnation and uh yeah i have to put my hand up you know i was part of a government that uh, was driving accountability and and uh, testing and tables uh, and academies, and those got picked up and run with by Michael Gove and Nick Gibb and you know put on steroids and accelerated. But there's no doubt in my mind that that's really strangling the system from any innovation, from any real progress, and aligning our school system to what the real world needs and 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 preventing so many young people from properly realizing their talents. And I, I get very frustrated about that. Yeah. And, and uh, just to touch upon that, that early point that you said there, Jim, which is so important that I think uh, 2018, uh, 20, uh, 2008, 
I can't get my words. So 2008, you, you kind of pushed the initiative and, and drove this kind of um, initiative around connectivity and devices for, for home. And, and, and I know that Bob mentioned it. Um, and actually, the research showed the impact that had on disadvantaged students. Can you maybe walk through that and give us a bit more of a deep dive in that for those people who don't are aware of what that was and actually what impact, if we had to continue that, might have had now, um, yeah. I think? Uh, I can give it a go. I mean, I, back in, I think, 2008, I um, in January, I made a speech to open the Bet Show in London which said we were going to end the digital divide for school-aged children, but that at that point, as the minister, I didn't know how we were going to do it, but I was going to convene a task force of, uh, of commercial partners, you know, be they software, hardware, um, retailers, connectivity providers, and uh, obviously school leaders and some of the, um, the charitable sector that were interested in all this, and together we would work this out. And it was led by some great people, you know, people like Neil McLean from Bechter. Um, there were some great inputs from uh, Intel, from Microsoft, from uh, the eLearning Foundation as it was. And we, in the end, came up with a proposition that was really innovative, um, that had a, a sum of money that I had to get out of the treasury. Um, uh, and uh, I was fortunate that uh, Ed Balls was the Secretary of State, and he was supportive, and he had the ear of Gordon Brown, and um, and Gordon was able to persuade Alistair Darling. And at, at party conference, I think that year, um, he announced that we were going to go ahead and, and end the digital divide, and, and we announced how we were going to do it. And, and the scheme basically was one where if you were on qualifying benefits, you could go along to the council and you know, quickly within 15 minutes, prove your eligibility for the scheme. And then you would receive in the post a MasterCard, uh, I think it was a Barclay card, um, that was pre-charged with government money um, and a list of five local retailers that you could go to uh, in order to buy your kit uh, with connectivity in the same way that anybody else, regardless of income, would go and buy it with plastic in, you know, Dixon's or wherever it was, you know, and sometimes they were, these were really local places. And, um, you yeah, there were one or two major retailers um, that were kept going through the 2008-2009 crash um, because of that scheme. And it was really simple. It, it, it had dignity. Uh, some of these people have never used plastic before to buy things, um, and you know, it, it, it empowered them. If they wanted to top it up to you know, buy a bit extra, they could, and there was a specification of the sorts of machines that they could get with it. And uh, as a result, a half a million children who weren't previously online got online, and the uh, the evaluation of that scheme, which is available buried away in the archives, and uh, Bob Harrison's uh, very good at regularly uh, tweeting out the evaluation, um, showed that it, it did a great job. Because you know, we had to make the case solely on the educational benefit, but obviously it had some other benefits as well, like uh, allowing poorer families to be able to benefit from cheaper online prices for their, their utilities, for example. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things that came out of it. and. Um, well, goodness me, 
what we would give for that skin right now. Yeah. What um just to get it maybe fast forward a few years after you were in the cabinet gym and uh I think it was it was a two thousand thirteen, uh Bob can correct me there, when when Feltag uh brought its recommendations uh to the to uh, Matt Hancock, I think it was. Yeah. And then with the with the change in ministers there, them just not going with going with those recommendations at all. How how just for the for the mere lay people like us who 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 aren't in government, how how does that work from behind the scenes? Because I think for us looking at that, it just sounds absolutely crazy that that you have a team of people, experts in the field, producing something which which is quite vitally important, and then just gets well, it looks like it just gets ignored. Uh, in terms of the, maybe the what the conservative um, government were thinking at the time, and I know you, you might not have much insight into that, or you, or you might do. I'm not sure, but why why would something like that happen? Why would why would that be ignored to the degree it was? Well, Dan, it's not that unusual, and it and it's not actually to be fair, it's not particular to any political party in government. But you, you know, my reading of that situation was Matt Hancock. Um, consistently actually as i've observed him as a minister he's always been keen on technology so he was the skills minister at the time he was keen on what technology could do for fe um, and skills training uh, quite rightly and he would have persuaded whoever the uh secretary of state was at the time i assume it's probably still michael gove uh, to let him get on with that and probably he was told that's fine as long as it's got nothing to do with schools um, because you know a consistent feature throughout has been schools haven't been uh, the schools minister Nick Gibb and uh, and schools policy hasn't been that keen on technology which I can come back to but um, Matt will have commissioned it it will have all happened and then he gets reshuffled and there isn't a champion and if there isn't a ministerial champion champion for the policy there particularly if it's got a spend, spending tag attached to it and you know as i did with home access i had to go to the secretary of state i had to get him on side i then with him had to go to the prime minister and the chancellor and get them on side yeah nothing nothing is done until you've got all the dots dotted and the t's crossed and you know there were times in government when i couldn't get clearance for things and uh, you know it's disappointing um, but it happens. Um, and there were times when you work like crazy to get something done and then you lose office and mm. it just disappears, stuff like grains of sand running through your hand. Um, you know, if, if we'd had a powerful enough Secretary of State at any point who, who got into technology, and I think probably the current one I think probably is interested in, in technology as part of the solution. I think he's particularly interested in vocational technical training. Um, I think there's a lot of potential uh, for him, should he choose to revisit Feltag recommendations to connect with his own agenda. Um, and yeah, Gavin Williamson, I think, could do good with that if, uh, uh, you know, if he can win over support from uh, the chancellor and the prime minister for it, which, yeah, it's perfectly possible. So, yeah, I, I never lose hope. You know, you've got to work with whoever's power, and this lot are going to be in power for some time, and try and and try and get the right thing done uh, with whoever it is. Do you think that? Do you think? Sorry, Ben. Do you think they're regretting it now? 
Do you think that like someone like Matt Hancock is looking back to 2013 thinking we probably should have implemented that? I think he probably hasn't got time at the moment. He's too busy worrying about um, about yeah, a pandemic crisis. But um, I think when they're reflecting, um, you know, my my reading of what's going on in the department now is that you know there was this tiny little group. You know, we we went through a period where there basically weren't any officials working on technology and education. That then there, a small team emerged, I think, from memory under Damien Hines. And uh, that, uh, that small group started working on things and they developed an EdTech strategy, which mm-hmm. was great if only it had mentioned learning in the strategy. So it was sort of everything but learning. Um, uh, and uh, and that's you know that's what it was, but um, that was the beginnings of a team, and then suddenly this crisis hits, and my understanding is there's a whole bunch of people who suddenly become interested in that policy area, and it's been flooded with interest, and and my guess is probably some people seconded into the team trying to do deals with Google and and with Microsoft about cloud and trying to work out ah. Oh, how could we procure 800,000 new devices so that we can end the digital divide overnight? You know, various naive questions, um, because obviously the, those, yeah, that number, they just don't exist in stock anywhere. They've got to be made in China where manufacturing capacity has been reduced and they've got to be freighted and freighting capacity has been reduced. And, you know, it's hard to get all of that together. And then you've got to train the workforce suddenly overnight. And there, I'm sure there are people going, ah, oh, shit, we could have, you know, we could have listened to that, you know, Bob Harrison and Steve Apple and bloody Jim Knight. And, uh, and maybe we'd be a bit further on. Yeah. I think, hindsight is a beautiful thing isn't it we get thrown into a into a thing like this and we're in that position even that even that whole um edtech strategy from last year 400 pound a school is is basically what it worked out Mm -hmm. at it's like you're going to get two devices and that's if the cheap devices per school not per person and i suppose um we put ourselves into a position now where the all the the things that you've talked about and we've listened to um listened to you for for a while and read read the things that you, that you have talked about is that teaching and the way that um you're focused on teachers especially what you've talked about there is is your role at TESS about champion teacher championing teachers and supporting them and what they do some of the stuff that you've talked about is 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 mind blowing um, but but simply mind blowing if that we are, if with all due respect it's just saying let teachers teach um, and I'd, lo- yeah. I'd love you to talk about some of that stuff about how you want teachers to be able to teach um, and, and technology and how that fits together with some of this ministerial okay. stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've over the last, well, I don't know, 11 years, when was it? 2006, I became a school minister. So it's a long time now, 14 years that I've been thinking about this. And, you know, over time you get, opportunities to reflect you don't really get any time when you're a minister to reflect it's only afterwards that you think oh god if only i'd have thought that then um but uh you're um my reflection looking around the world and i'm lucky enough to do a certain amount of 
travel and to have done a certain amount of travel looking at jurisdictions. The one thing that scales well and successfully in education is teacher quality. You know, it's, it's the defining thing uh, that works. And so the role of technology is to help teachers uh, do the human side of teaching and uh, free them up from all of the ridiculous other stuff that they get bogged down with in terms of administration and preparation and feedback and so on, some of which is entirely necessary, but much of which uh, can be uh, eased and aided considerably by uh, by smart technology. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'm proud of at the moment with, with TES that we've done, uh, you know, TES, the TES Institute is now the fifth largest qualifier of teachers in England. And we have probably the largest uh, body of, of educational uh, resources for training teachers beyond the resources platform that everyone knows at TES. Within, within the Institute, we've got all these resources. And we, we saw as this crisis started to happen that there are a whole bunch of um, trainee teachers who weren't going to be able to qualify because their training was face-to-face -face. and we uh we saw that the department quite rightly agreed that they would be able to complete their training and their qualification and their assessment online if their provider could offer them that and so we offered to all the providers in the country um, free access to our platform to be able to allow those teachers to complete. And 75% of university providers, and we think pretty much every school-centered initial teacher training provider has now taken up that offer. And probably as a result, TES will be uh, part of allowing at least half of all the trainee teachers in the country to qualify this year um, because of that offer during the crisis, which is awesome to be associated with. Um, and and the reason why we wanted to do that was because we believe in teachers because yeah we we're really worried about the recruitment and retention crisis we're really worried that there aren't enough teachers coming into the profession and there aren't enough being retained in the profession and uh, yeah we have to help them and when i think about the retention problem so much of that is about workload and when i think about workload i say well what are people doing all day? And you know, all the surveying says that you know the average teacher in England works about you know, 46, 47 hours a week. Um, it's quite a long, uh, hard week. But when I look at what they what they say they're doing with that time, if if we use really good applications of artificial intelligence, you know, many of those tools don't exist, but some of them do. Uh, with more embedded use of technology in the classroom, then a lot of the feedback can be done using technology, uh, which currently is painful and long marking. Now you don't rule out marking altogether, but, but there's quite a lot that you could do, do much more easily. Most of the admin, the technology could take care of. Um, you know, Tez has recently acquired a wonderful um, AI field timetabling, a piece of software called from Edval in Australia. Uh, and that takes away a huge ball ache from uh, school leaders in terms of timetabling and allows so many more criteria to be fed in to the problem of the school timetable, which is one of the most complicated maths problems that humanity is, 
invented. And that then in turn allows you to employ more part-timers, people want more flexible working and do all sorts of different things because you've got a bunch of different inputs into the timetable. And that's just a good example of how intelligent use of artificial intelligence, well-led as always, technology has to be well-led, um, you can take quite a lot of the difficult stuff away from teachers and allow them to focus on the human stuff. Because in the end, education is a profoundly human endeavor that requires the human teacher and the human learner to have that interaction uh, and for the, the magic to then happen. Yeah, I think this really fits nicely in with your whole your whole um, uh, kind of view on changing the algorithm of education, I think is the phrase you use. Uh, could you yeah. maybe go into a bit about that? Because uh, I found uh, quite mind-blown. I was uh, doing my research for this earlier today, and I, and I came across you talking about um, kind of the unsustainability of universities in the future and how the algorithm of education uh, kind of needs to change. It would be fascinating if you could delve into that for us. Yeah, so relatively quickly, you know, I, the way I was educated is the same way as Coco, who's the eight-year-old in the next room, um, is being educated, which is, you know, go to school, um, you know, work hard, do your homework, take some tests. If you do well in your tests, um, you can take some more tests. And, you know, you, that'll carry on until you go to university. Um, and then you'll get a degree and the theory is that that will give you a job for life and you know then you can join a final salary pension scheme and get a 25-year mortgage and retire in your mid-50s and so on now obviously that that reality in in the real world's disappeared there aren't many final salary pension schemes anymore and a job for life has disappeared you know the reality for Coco is that she is going to pivot through multiple careers during her working life. Uh, and she's going to have to have an ongoing relationship with education in order to pivot through all of that, um, uh, that change in the labor market. And, and what does that then mean for our education systems? You know, Coco's favorite babysitter uh, is a guy who, you know, went to a comprehensive school in Cardiff. He got a scholarship to Wellington School for his sixth form, did really well in his A-levels, went to Oxford, got a great degree from Oxford, did a master's at, at uh, Imperial, has got a great job in software engineering, um, earning reasonable money. But I asked him what proportion of his income he's now repaying in student debt. And everything he earns over 25 grand, he's paying 15% of income in debt repayment. So his effective marginal rate of tax after he's paid income tax, national insurance, and student loan repayments is 48% of income. Now that's just not right. Now he's lucky in a way in that he's got a great job and probably all of those qualifications are gonna play out for him, but there's a whole bunch of other people who are going to university and taking on a lot of debt. And especially as we now, post-crisis, look at a really severe recession, are they going to be able to earn the money to pay that back when the bloody interest rate's 6% on that debt? Uh, you know, I think it's immoral. And so you've got these forces at play where the 
the idea of encumbering yourself at the beginning of your working life with a whole bunch of debt and being essentially taxed to the nines in exchange for it doesn't feel sustainable. You've got employers now starting to want to grow their own talent. Then, you know, the apprenticeship levy is meaning that some of them are abandoning graduate recruitment schemes and taking people on at 18 and growing them. You've got companies like Uber, you know, whatever we think of Uber, but they're offering their drivers to pay for their part-time open university courses. Starbucks in the States, uh, if you've been there for more than three months at whatever level, they will pay for you to get a bachelor's from Arizona State University, which is a perfectly good university. Um, uh, AT&T, they're saying, um, we will fund your micro degrees from uh, Udacity, I think it is. So more and more you've got employers who are not, hiring on the basis of CVs, they are hiring on the basis of, of analytics, they are um, also now starting to pay for learning and embedding learning and development in the way that they develop their talent. All of that is undermining the business model of university. You know, if you're advising a 16, 17 year old what they're going to do next, in an ideal world, I think I would advise them to get a degree apprenticeship. You know, if they can get their degree whilst earning, and that, yeah, no surprise that the degree apprenticeship offered by Rolls-Royce is more competed for than a degree at Oxford. Uh, because, you know, you don't get the debt, you get a degree uh, and you're earning. Yeah, that's, that's fab. We'll see more of that. I'm sure we will. And I'm sure we will have to see universities responding by working more closely with employers and by the university experience being a short writer passage of a year or so and then into the workplace and then coming back to university on a regular basis uh, and maybe even subscription models for universities which i think would be really interesting well i imagine and, and i know that a lot of big companies um in terms of the recruitment process are looking at the, the triangle and looking at gca in terms of general cognitive ability rather than um, where they're at now and now they can regurgitate information yeah. in the exam and looking at levels in terms of where they can be and how they can develop over the next two years and also leadership across all levels and all of those kind of skill sets that are more vital because some of these people like I say coming out with great degrees that's fine but the actual wraparound in terms of the skills of the workforce what they're looking for they're not picking up the, and developing those skills because they're fully solely focused on just that academic yeah. Um, qualification or degree that they've yeah. just obtained. Um, and, and yeah, some, some of the stuff that teachers are thinking and talking about now in terms of metacognition, I think are quite helpful um, in that those are the sorts of things. But then there's also, you know, I have a, this profound worry with our infatuation with cognitive development and testing. Yeah, you know, if we're training kids to just recall stuff in tests. Yeah, computers will do that better. We're just training them to be out-competed by computers. So the metacognition is really important. And then the human skills are really important. We've got to train them to be better humans than machines will ever be. So the social and emotional development has to be rebalanced to sit alongside the cognitive development. I'm not, you know, I, re I reject the, the sort of, the false dichotomy of knowledge or skills. It's got to be both, but it's got to be, Cognitive, emotional, and social, most important. Uh, I was just going to jump on that, and I think that's the that's the crux for that that character development, the human ability to be able to communicate with people, the ability to continue lifelong learning. I think that's what 
is is where we are. And I think my frustration, I was a, an RE teacher for um, a, a good amount of years. And I, I used to think we were talking about real issues and about the what it means to be uh, understand your views and other people's views and be able to um, have that critical analysis and being able to self-reflect and all those things. Yet we we had to kind of scrap some of that because we were teaching to a test and uh, we had to sit in an exam hall. And I think, do you think it's, do you think it's because of the focus on testing and for, uh, summative assessment or endpoint assessment that, that has done that? Or do you think, um, because if you look at the, the origins of, of, of how our education system and the, the stuff in ancient Greece and all that kind of stuff was around this level of, you never really arrive. You're always a student. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm just yeah. throwing it out there. Well, it, it's really important that we're always students. And it's really important we have some of those more rounded skills. I was lucky enough today to be talking to uh, Dame Sue Campbell, who also happens to be a Baroness, but who is the head of um, women's football at the FA. Uh, and what she's done, yeah, she's a former PE teacher and she used to run the Youth Sports Trust. And what she's done for school PE um, is, is extraordinary. But the reason why she's now in the FA driving women's football and girls football in schools is she sees it not just as a great sport that can engage people but it's about building some of those life skills some of those skills of resilience some of those skills of working in teams you know, there's a whole bunch of things that we can get out of out of things like team sport that i think are really uh, are really significant in 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 building all of that uh, and then the question about testing which is in a way the tail that wags the dog of the system. But I don't blame the assessment companies, you know, tempting as sometimes it is, um, because uh, in a way, you know, I know from talking to them, you know, they would like to move away in many ways. I'd like to move away from the anachronism of people sat in small desks in large sports halls with paper and pen. Yeah, that's madness. You know, developing the skills to succeed in that environment are things that you'll never use again, ever. It's sort of bonkers. And yeah, this year, suddenly, we're going to trust teachers and, and trust some kind of system that Ofqual is going to uh, regulate um, around how we ensure that there's there's fairness with all of that. And suddenly, we are leaping to do uh, trusting the assessor, uh, and you know, and it's about uh, in the same way that I guess when our our children do, you know, if, if they're middle class enough to dance and music and drama exams, um, they uh, we we trust the assessor then to make a subjective ju uh, judgment about their performance and give them their grading exam. We could do a lot more of that. We could do a lot more where we enhance the assessment skills of our teachers and we trust them more. And then we can take some sampling and make sure that we've you know, normatively you know, got it right. And then the high stakes testing, we can just dial right right down. Now that, that might be quite threatening for assessment companies commercially. Um, we can also use IT more. Yeah, there's a certain amount of assessment that we can do using IT. And um, yeah, if we're capturing lots of data, we can use that too. I think there's a whole revolution that's needed in that area. 
revolution in thinking at a policy level, because in the end, it's the policymakers who want the objectivity. And, the, and they're the ones that write the, the remit letter every year to Ofqual telling them how they're going to do their job, how they're going to regulate the system. And uh, if they were to relax things a bit more, um, I think we would see some sort of quantitative, objective testing or using technology. And then we, we would see more subjective assessment uh, using the skills of the assessor. And I would really welcome that because then we can assess some other things apart from just, just knowledge. It's a trust. It is a trust thing as well, isn't it? I suppose what you what you're talking about there. It's a going back to that. You, you you talked about training teachers and making sure that teachers are always learning, and then then therefore because they are trained and because they are qualified, and also because they've got a, an investment in this, that we, we can trust them. Because uh, I think there's a that we we talk about this quite a lot on the podcast, and we certainly talk about this in in our in our conversations off off offline around trust and how important that is um in in building a strong culture and in, in, in a school and in an education system it, that's that's the um that's the crux isn't it about trust yeah yeah it is and um and it's about whether or not we think teachers are professionals yeah fundamentally if we think they're professionals then we trust them because that's what we do with other professionals if we just think that they're workers in exam factories, then then we think our schools are all about compliance. Basically, we're just trying. We're just putting kids through a compliance factory. Um, yeah, I I think there is another way forward, and you know, I you know, I can't tell you how you know, highly I think of our teaching profession. I think it's the most important profession in the world. It's the biggest profession in the world. Um, and we need to support teachers more than we do, but we need to trust them and we need to treat them like professionals. Uh, you know, at times, some of their representatives don't treat them like professionals either. And, you know, everyone in the whole system needs to uh, think about that. But um, uh, I'm just reading, reading Pete Bell's message. Um, uh, yeah, and his question is about you know we can only use teacher judgment for high stakes awards when we can remove league tables and judge schools by other measures yeah it, it is possible to remove league tables you know accountability is a non-negotiable you know when you're receiving a lot of public money you've got to be accountable for that public money but it doesn't have to be through the aggregation up of lot of, of everyone's test results into tables of course it doesn't you know there aren't very many systems around the world that do that. So why do we have to do it? We don't have to do it. Um, you know, some would say, well, you could do for the system as a whole, you could just get some kids on a sampling basis to take some tests and then you can see how well the system as a whole is doing. You could do that. Yeah, you know, they could just take the PISA test every three years. If we think that that's important, we could do that. Um, their individual tests are important for them but we we test them too much i don't think we need gcses i think we could get rid of those we'd save a fortune um you know they're an anachronism left over from when people had to leave school at 16 and then one one of the very few things that remained from when i was a minister was when i started and completed the legislature the whole policy and the legislation to raise the school leaving age to the education leaving age to 18. 
why do we need exams at 16? I don't get it. I don't understand. You know, we, we could have a national curriculum that finishes at 14, and then we could open up a whole bunch of flexibility for different learning routes and different learning styles and different and difference and diversity in education 14 to 19 without the massive punctuation mark of GCSEs. Wouldn't that be great? But Jim, under, under this, uh, under this, uh, or, or the past few Tory governments who've put a lot of emphasis on endpoint assessment, do you do you think it will actually realistically ever ever come about with a Tory government? Um. Well, the opportunity that this Tory government has, which is pretty much unique is they now represent a bunch of former industrial towns, largely northern industrial towns, that um, have always been Labour and that are now Tory, to my regret, and where this infatuation with the academic has not served those communities well, um, where there's lots of parents who are failed by education and that, that cycle is repeating itself. And if their MPs, their Tory MPs, have a voice in the Tory party, then there is the opportunity for them to say, hang on a minute, we need to change the way this whole system works. And we need to change it so that it works for every child, not just <clears throat> at best two thirds, but that's at absolute best, you know, probably half. And, um, and that's not good enough. And, you know, if, these former industrial communities are going to have a future, then it's not that I'm not ambitious for them. I'm ambitious for them to enter into higher education and to higher levels of learning, but not purely academic. I don't get it. I don't get why we are so uh, infatuated with that. Yeah, and, and, and touching upon that, that element that you just said around student voice, uh, and I know that you wrote an article, um, I think it was in, in, in 2017, um, around students have a, a massive voice and a massive part to play, but we just need to listen to them. Um, I think that's definitely something that we need to explore, that teachers are so important, but also that, that whole another stakeholder of actually what do the students want and how can we support yeah. them to try and create something new for the benefit of them. Um, and I know that you talked about the fact that the younger generation have been left out and, and have been an unheard voice for so long that they're starting to to push back. And I, and I think, Let's, let's listen to them, maybe. I think that's definitely something we should explore. Absolutely. You know, here we are, four bearded blokes, some of us with not as much hair as we would have liked. And, uh, yeah, there's not that much diversity in the room. Um, we, need, we need diversity if we're going to make good decisions. And we need diversity of background. Um, you know, I've no, I've no idea what your background is, so there might be good diversity of background. You know, I, I hold my hand up to being the private school Cambridge graduate in the room. Um, so, yeah, there's that, uh, and, and a Lord to boot. So, you know, uh, I, I clearly was destined to be in power. But um, we, if, if they're all like me, we're gonna make really rubbish decisions. Um, we need diversity of age, diversity of background, diversity of skin color, diversity of gender. And I really look forward to future episodes of edgy futurists where you're bringing some of those young people on and finding out from them 
you know, asking them some of the same questions you asked me and uh, finding out from them what they think about the future and what they would want for their kids in 20 years' time, if it's possible for them to think that far ahead. Yeah, if you go, um, we've got uh, we've got over a hundred episodes where we've got young teachers, teachers from all different right. backgrounds, from all across the yeah. world as well. So there's, yeah, uh, have a look back at that. There's, there's but yeah, there's, but but yeah, bring in some some young people as well. Yeah, from yeah, we, from 100%. from diverse backgrounds because it you know, and actually Steve Heppel is probably the greatest champion I know of this. Uh, you know, he advocates lowering the voting age to 11 i think or 10 or, or, or i can't remember um you know he massively believes that we'll only bring about real change in our society if we extend the franchise uh much younger uh, yeah i agree to lowering the voting age i'm not sh- uh, i'm not sure yet whether whether we go that low but we definitely need more diversity in the room yeah, yeah, definitely, and 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 it and it goes into a, a book that um, I think we've all recently I'm read. Just especially about to jump guys. on that. I'm just going to jump on it. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've 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 seen it, Jim. I'm, I'm sure you around Matthew Syed, um, Rebel Ideas. Yeah. Um, what a fantastic book for for those people in education that looks at the power of diversity and 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 goes through history and loads of different examples of that you by not looking at rebel ideas and not thinking about diversity and i know it doesn't look like diversity in here but getting many voices from different facets you do that at your peril and i think education um the system and 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 we we definitely are considering it and i think everybody has to consider that uh, and and education and not doing enough of it for me i think yeah i think think that's right I think as well that the 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 element that you're talking about there is is revolutionary, isn't it? Because we've we've always had the the decision makers are this group of of people, this demographic of people, and the people that are that are affected by this are that they're not they're not the voices in the room. So therefore, really, it's it's you you talked you touched on this earlier. You talked about the revolution. You talked about it needs some revolutionary thinking, um, and I, and I, I wonder whether um, somebody who's seen a lot of change and see some for the better and some not, and some that change that you wanted to see that you haven't seen. What does, what does, what, what does it look like in the, what, what could it look like in the next 10 years or, or, or what, what could the next steps be? Do you think? Well, I think um, if we don't see some change, which, you know, is unlikely to be revolutionary, but you know, the, don't rule out that this current lockdown that we're in doesn't change some perceptions. You know, you've got a whole bunch of parents who are more engaged with their children as learners than they've been before. And they might have a, a, an understanding of what engages them and what doesn't engage them crucially and, and what they value and what they don't value that will be different. And they might make different demands of teachers. I think they'll respect teachers more and as a as a country, you know, in uh, in what thirty nine minutes, I'll go out and and clap and you know bang my saucepans for the NHS um, because that's what what we should do. And you know, I can't can't tell you how moved I am by the risks that those health workers are making on our behalf uh, to save lives, but. Teachers are making some similar risks. Those that are still teaching, that are still 
uh, educating the children of those health workers. Um, and, uh, and lots of parents will be at home going, I don't know how these bloody teachers cope. I don't know, yeah, they've got 30 of the buggers and I can't cope with one or two of them. And yeah, there'll be a different respect I hope for teachers as a result of this. But coming out of lockdown, it also may change some other things and it may drive some bigger change. And so over the next 10 years, you know, if things don't change, I think there'll be more of a, it's more likely there'll be a revolution because the, there'll be a cauldron, there'll be a pressure that will force more people to home educate. There'll be some who'll go, yeah, actually, it was a bit of a nightmare, but I could do this if I can get together with like-minded parents and uh, maybe be an educator one day a week. And if I've got, you know, four others who are like me, then we could provide teaching for five people or something. I'm not a big fan of that, but then once they get enhanced by technology, once they can link in with subject specialists, then you start to see that there is a platform school that could emerge that might might fuel that. We might see that just as a response to no change. Yeah. If we do get change, then I think we will start to see a a response. Yeah, you know, we will see employers going actually we don't value qualifications as much as we used to um we want to grow our own uh, we'll see universities going oh shit our qualifications aren't valued as much so we're going to have to change and we will work more closely with these employers and we'll do more degree apprenticeships we'll do more um, earn as you learn and that will shift things at that end and if if it's not so much about university as the end game of schools and it's more about employment, then that will change the culture in schools. Parents at the same time going, and actually, my kid's really unhappy because of all your testing. And you know, we've got all of these mental health concerns. That all forces change on policymakers. And then policymakers, in the end, I think will have to respond. And what they will have to do is they will have to loosen the accountability. They'll have to trust professionals more. They will have to free up the curriculum and trust teachers more to decide their own curriculum. That would be really challenging to the profession because they've been schooled in compliance for such a long time. And the leaders are, too many of them are leaders of compliance rather than leaders of learning. Uh, but it's a big challenge to the profession, but they, they can rise to it because I believe in them. And then use the power of the technology that we've now learned to work with a bit more and be a bit more confident with to empower teachers and leaders and, and, and make good things happen. I think, I think there's a really good possibility there. Uh, I just hope we grab it. Otherwise, those that can afford to in time or money will just duck out of the state system. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think it, it also, in terms of revolution, brings back a, a caveat of, of as we move to more remote working, and that caveat more support in terms of remote learning and the adult education element of that. And 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 one of the barriers to, to adult education has, has always been they have to go into a generally have to go into a building to 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 learn a skill. There's so many different things in terms of caring responsibilities and 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 looking after children and all those different things that actually this process has shown that we can move beyond that and actually develop parents and adults 
to be able to be more engaged with technology, be lifelong learners. And, and, and I think that will bring a revolution because it will take then more of an interest in terms of their own um, learning down, down the ladder as well in terms of what's happening in, in schools and FE. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, right now, what I hope is that as a system, those teachers that are working are being allowed to focus on those kids who are already behind, who probably don't have access to the technology, who are less likely to have adults at home who are educationally competent to support them and are able to prevent the attainment gap widening as a result of lockdown um, and let parents like me just get on with it um, with a bit of light touch support because frankly our kids will be fine they'll be fine even if they don't do any learning until september they'll be fine um, so yeah the, the sort of my almost parting thought is um, as a profession, you know, have that focus on the kids that you teach who really need you right now and get in touch with them, give them a call. You know, if they're not online, give them a call, phone them up, find out how they are, see what they're doing, see how they're getting on, make sure they're okay, give them that human support and, and help them get through this and, if, and ideally help them get through this without them falling further behind. Yeah, I think that's one of the big things is that's going to come out of this is that I think schools are going to have a, a bigger insight into what's going on at home. Um, and I think we're starting to see that already. And and, and I know I was reading something uh, in the media the other day about how uh, people are starting to realise that schools were, were never just about education. They were about social care. They were about... Um, they, they were about all of that as well and people and people never never really saw that side of things but i think as well on the the other side of that coin i think schools are schools internally are starting to see more of what's going on at, in at homes and and also the the inequality as well that we see and i know that this is a bit of a passion of yours jim and and um I know you've talked about kind of digital equity across refugee camps and um yeah. And, and I love all. I love all that. Um, I was I was listening to a talk of yours. I think from about four years ago, where you you were talking about um, getting internet to to kids in in a, in a refugee camp and how people went around with backpacks on, with Wi-Fi yeah. in broadcasting the internet to people. Um, it'd be great to get your take on kind of. I mean, we're talking about a refugee camp there, but we're actually seeing that within a, a modern um, country like ours, there there is there's some similar issues there with access to the right kind of device for access to Wi-Fi. Do you think that the coronavirus pandemic is going to open up the government's eyes to this and will they do something about it? Or yeah, it'd be great to get your take on that. I think it's possible that they will, because I think uh, there may be an appreciation that this is not, you know, lockdown will end in a few weeks time, I, I guess, but the pandemic, is going to be with us for quite a while yeah. and we may be back in lockdown at some point um in and out of it you know depending on what the virus does and that and you know vaccination and screening and all a whole bunch of other things so i think there will be a, a heightened sense of resilience uh and you know making sure that people have got access um <clears throat> to connectivity and yeah, I hope so. You know, I think to me, it's a human right. It's a fundamental. Um, 
you know, we need access to water, we need access to power, and we need access to connectivity. And um, yeah, power can kill you, and connectivity can do really bad things to you. But we need it, and we need to learn to use it, and we need to learn to use it successfully. I think we we could Steve would Steve would say if you ever listen back to any of our uh, podcasts Steve usually says at this point we could talk all night uh, but I know <laughs> that you uh, that uh, you've got dinner waiting and uh, yeah we, I can smell know, the fish pie <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, and obviously you, you've Bob asked in the in the uh, comments earlier if you've got scotch in the glass we've started scotch so therefore uh, we don't want to keep you too long we we really appreciate your insight and we're grateful for we said on a podcast a couple of episodes ago that. It's people like yourselves that are that we are trying to stand on those shoulders of those giants who have tried to do something and tried to change something. And we're really grateful for you giving us your time tonight, but also for the stuff that you've done for this country and for young people all around the world, the stuff that you're doing. We haven't even got into some of the stuff around uh, malaria treatment and, yeah. and apps for good and all that. What, what you're doing is, is making a difference and we're grateful for that. Um, so thank you so much for, for coming on and uh, hopefully at some point we'll, we'll speak to you again and uh, be able to have some of your wonderful insight again. Thanks for coming on, Jim. Well, thank you very much. I've really, uh, I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, there's, there's plenty to talk about. There's, I am doing some stuff on COVID with, with that other business where we have a, um, a free app that we're, you know, it's developed in France. So we're offering it free to the French and we're trying to get people in the UK to listen, but where we can read uh, using the, the, the lens of a smartphone, the results of um, the diagnostic tests. And then we can then geolocate and timestamp those so that for screening purposes, uh, once those tests become widely available, we can use them to uh, help get us out of lockdown a bit quicker. And um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to make a difference with that. Um, so there's there's always lots to talk about. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, do keep in touch. And uh, maybe I'll come back sometime, maybe with a young person. Yes. Sounds great. We, uh, we'd love to do that, Jim. And, and we've talked about a student voice podcast, so uh, we can get you on and, and use the power of tests and, and, and everything else. Uh, from me, absolutely fan- fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been brilliant. Take care. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Jim, if you if you just stay on, we'll end the broadcast. If you just stay on for a couple of minutes, um, that'd be great. Thank you very much.